Hello and welcome to the Mongol Media Show. I'm Editor-in-Chief Efe Levan, and today I'll be talking to Elia Rathor about her new article for Mongol Media called Fading Sweetness, a Parsi Story in Pakistan. To follow the website, you can visit www.mongolmedia.net. You can also support us from our Patreon. Can you tell us a little bit about your the article you recently wrote for us, uh, Fading Sweetness? Yes, of course. Well, um, it was my senior thesis for my history degree. And so I had spent like a year before talking to my professor about it, uh, who I had decided would be my supervisor. And really what I did was I started my senior year by going to Karachi and talking to some Parsi people. And then I came back to him and I was like, you know, I don't know what to do. Like, I don't know what angle to start with. And really all I, all I knew was that I wanted to write about the Parsis. I had no idea what I would do. I had no idea how I would structure it or anything like that. And um, I decided that like my, my professor like mentioned that in everything that I had written for him, the thread that ran through the most potently was memory. And so during the break, um, during the spring break, I kind of did a literature review of all, um, all the things that I could find on cultural memory studies and stuff like that, and decided that that was the angle that I would go to it from, which turned out to be the most useful thing <laughs> really was um, the part that uh, like, like, structuring it through memory because if you talk about minorities in Pakistan usually there's um, different angles and it's usually about like violence or you know injustice and um, uh, institutionalized uh, oppression and stuff like that but with the Parsis it's a really different scenario because they're the only minority I could really think of in Pakistan that isn't really persecuted you know, like they're not a persecuted minority. So you need a different frame of things when you're, when you're talking about them. And um, it, was, it was wonderful because the Parsi community is such a quirky community. Like every, every single one of them you meet uh, are really strong characters. Maybe it's because there's so few of them left that like, you know, uh, their Parsiness really starts coming out. Um, but yeah, um, it's it's really interesting because um, I began with sitting at my friend's house and looking at her, talking to her mom, and they were speaking a language I didn't understand. And I was just like, you know, I don't know anything about you guys, like <laughs> nothing, <laughs> like like <laughs> like I know abs. I've known you for like two years. And, or three years and I have absolutely no clue about where your family came from, how this happened, like are there any Parsis left in Pakistan, what, what is happening? And my friend was like, yeah, uh, nobody really knows. <laughs> I was like, okay, well, that, that's interesting, maybe I should write about that. So that's really how it began. And then through the process of like meeting all the Parsi people and trying to like make it concrete through memory. Uh, it, I got really sad. Like I had this like really melancholic 
um, association with my project after a bit because it was really hard talking to people who know that they are like their future in this country is almost definitely you know not a good one like it's a fading one and it's a slowly fading one and it's one that like really uh, I don't know I just kept going back to that one scene in Earth 1947 which I also watched for this yes. project yeah yeah where there's a sick man and it's during partition right so like there's a sick man and he in the beginning is adamant here Lahore is my home there's nothing anyone could do that could ever make me leave Lahore or there's nothing that could happen that could make Lahore any less of you know like it's where my family has always been mm-hmm. and then by the end of it you know in tears and he's just breaking down at the fact that a land that was associated with him and his family for the longest time will no longer remember him right and that's really where the sadness came in for me was that it's all been forgotten everything that the Parsis have done for us everything that the Parsis are all of this rich like texture that they've added to Pakistan it's all just faded away mm. we don't even mention them in our textbooks they're nowhere like there's the only I think mention that like the only thing people know when you say Parsi is oh Kaide Azam who was the founder of the country was married to a Parsi that's the only thing that people have any like sort of trivia about like like related to the Parsi not even about. Freddie Mercury yeah yeah no they have no idea like like and most people have no idea of that connection <laughs> and um and it's really sad because there's a lot of pride to be had in that i think mm-hmm. you know and uh i think if i mean i've always been a huge advocate of completely like replacing our history education with something new because it's can't be reformed at this point <laughs> like it's it's horrible uh, the way that we teach history and um i didn't even grow up in pakistan like completely and even i didn't like you know like i've never heard of the parsis like like mm-hmm. i heard about the zoroastrians in a tiny blurb in my 10th grade history book i guess mm-hmm. and then that's all i knew this is just a part of the world that they had a lot of influence in mm-hmm. and yet we don't acknowledge it which is really really sad <laughs> so yes. i just got really sad about it <laughs> yeah maybe you can tell us a bit about the uh, history of parsis in the indian subcontinent starting from the um, uh, from the anecdote that gave the uh, gave the art i mean gave its name to the article oh well uh, yeah the sugar and milk story that's the myth right that when they came when they were like persecuted out of iran certain parsi uh, certain zoroastrians ran up the mountains and certain parsis went to to the seas and uh, sorry zoroastrians went to the seas and the zoroastrians that went to the seas landed in gujarat and people of gujarat the, the king over there jadirana he was very he was very kind about it you know it's like we are, we are uh, we are full so he sends <laughs> a glass full of milk <laughs> completely full to the brim and says here uh, you may you know use this as you know your transition point or whatever but we are full as a kingdom and we don't need anybody else 
and Parsis being the poetic people that they are, put some uh, sugar in the milk and they send it back and, uh, without dropping a single milk. So they're like, we will not take away from your kingdom. We will just sweeten it. And that is the myth mythologized, like, you know, creation story type thing, which, and the truth is, we don't really know if it's as true, like, the truth is a little bit muddled, right? Like, because it has been such a prolific story in, you know, whenever people are talking about Farsis, that's what they reference. Um, the truth has kind of been lost, like the, the actual factual aspects of it, because the records uh, don't really indicate, like we didn't have records really from that time. What you have is this Kisai Sanjan, which is kind of like a poetry, uh, like poetic reading of what happened. Mm -hmm. So it is, it is based on poetry. And um, by the time they got here, they were laborers. Uh, really good with um, uh, sea work. So like they were good with making boats and uh, were great merchants and stuff like that, which is why when the British came, they really like latched onto them immediately. They're mm. like, these people make our boats. And also they're not Muslim or Hindu. <laughs> so <laughs> it's easy for that, for us to like, like let's, let's elevate them a little bit. So when the British came, they really got their, uh, elevation from just like this hardworking community to an arist aristocratic community and became associated with you know nobility a lot more ran like started hanging out in higher circles and the first Parsi to ever receive baronetcy was uh, sorry the first Indian to ever receive baronetcy was a Parsi first mayor of Karachi was a Parsi it was just like you know like they were just they did really well because they were used as middlemen by the British to deal with the rest of the affairs of the kingdom. And um, I guess from there, the story gets a little sad because after the British left, and as we know, the British left with absolutely no plan for us. Uh, they told us that they'd give us a year to figure things out and then left immediately, right? Mm. And, and then caused the greatest mass migration, like, yeah, the greatest deaths in any given mass migration in the history of the world. We still don't even know how many people died, but millions and millions of people died because of that. And in all of that chaos, the Parsis were stuck in the middle because they had to maintain um, neutrality, right? Otherwise, every single other minority, which were which are all bigger than them, would have as the dude said in Earth, mangled them to Chutney. Mm. And once the British left and the Parsis started kind of hiding again, like not wanting to be in the public eye as much, uh, but where they did like, where they did settle in Pakistan, like there's a different story here, right? That's where things separated. Where there's the Indian Parsis and then the Pakistani Parsis. Completely different communities. While uh, talking to people, I asked them, you know, have you ever been? People here, like Parsis from Pakistan, go to India because they have one of their sacred fires in India. So, mm. uh, and so they go there and they, you know, sometimes get to interact with other communities. And they say that the Parsis in India are very different from us, you know. We uh, are smaller, so we've been able to take care of each other better. 
um, people in India know who the Parsis are. Like in Bombay, it's a known thing. And over here, even um, educated people, you know, knew they won't know what a Parsi is. So you were talking about the differences in, in, in realizing the differences between the Indian and the Parsi community. I decided I couldn't just like that. I wouldn't just do it on the uh, Parsi community in general, because mm. you know, that's the bulk of the scholarly work that has been done. Everything that I read online, trying to get research for this, it's all done on the Bombay Parsi. Mm. And that's really unfortunate because uh, really we do have a, we did, the Parsis have done a lot for Pakistan. Nobody's done any work on them. Other than people in the community who, you know, sometimes write about themselves, uh, which um, also gets forgotten and, and all of that. But yeah, um, that's where the story got a little uh, complicated. And so I had to, because there's no like clear divide, there's still Parsis and everything. You can't say that uh, their history is shared. So you have to kind of take that into account. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, sorry, I've been rambling. <laughs> what, what I found interesting in your article in relation to the specificities of the Parsi community according to their location was that, I mean, not only uh, it's beyond the kind of India and Pakistan differences between the two countries, you actually go specific enough to kind of discuss the differences between Parsi communities between Karachi and Lahore. Uh, so, I mean, this is not obviously, no community is homogenous, but I like the, I really appreciated the way that you went into detail to kind of specify the differences between this community, even, uh, even in different cities in Pakistan. Yeah, because my instructor, when I was telling him about this, mentioned that uh, the bulk of the Parsi community that's left in Pakistan is in Karachi. Mm. So I've never been to Karachi before in my life. <laughs> and the first time that I ever went was for this project. Um, and then I realized that Nilofer and her entire family had been in Lahore their entire lives. And when I talked to them about it, I realized, like they were actually the ones that told me okay, it's a lot different in Karachi. Over here, the community is way smaller. And the Karachi community is still small, but they're, you know, they're pretty big, like like in terms of relatively. <laughs> and um, so you kind of have to make a distinction because if you leave it to, um, if you leave it to the generalities that we have in our regular history, then it's just going to end up becoming, you know, another like um, another form of erasure, another form of like um, blending together that should not be blended you need mm-hmm. like i wanted this to be about remembrance and if you are remembering then you need to remember you know things distinctly for what they were rather than trying to punch them all together for ease mm-hmm. and um so i had to go to karachi a bunch of times <laughs> and that was actually really hard because you have to like uh fly from lahore and i'm from islamabad so i sometimes went from islamabad um but yeah, you have to do that. You have to draw a distinction. Other, uh, and you see like in the ways that they recounted their experiences in the different cities, it was very different. Um, I had to ask people and they mentioned that there were a couple of Parsis living in Quetta. There used to be a bigger community there or far greater community. They were ran out. Just like there was a Jewish community in Karachi that, you know, it's, uh, 
is now completely gone. There's graveyards, but no people. You know mm. how sad is that? It's, mm. it's, it's, uh, so much like you have to go city by city. But Karachi is also a way more cosmopolitan city and uh, uh, way more, I guess, tolerant uh, in terms of Pakistan for sure. Yeah. Karachi is. Yeah. Compared to Lahore, also. Super conservative. Yeah. Very, very. Yeah, it's one of the. It's like this the main heart of Punjab, right? And Punjab is like the heart of Pakistan in terms of the way people uh, look at it and the way institutions look at it. So it has taken it upon itself to conserve Pakistaniyat, which is like kind of like Americanism, but for Pakistan, like a kind of Pakistani. You know, um, the Lahore elite are very different from the Karachi elite in the sense that the Karachi elite are known to be more liberal. They have parties, they drink, they're really, you know, uh, they're really open-minded and expansive and stuff like that. Uh, and then the Lahore elite are the shil- like Shilwar Kameez, the really uh, well-dressed and like with opulent homes and really, really into their whole, uh, this was blessed by this uh, Kari Saab and this was like, and they have mashallah written on their okay. homes. Yeah, so it's like, you know, you have to project this aura of religiosity in the, in the in like propriety in Lahore that you don't have in Karachi. It's, it's, it's different, yeah. So in that kind of environment, obviously, every minority feels the need to be a lot less visible than they otherwise would. Yeah. yeah. And I was, I was wondering, for example, if you told me that, you know, uh, and you talk about this in the article as well, that during the partition, the party community suffered to like an exceptional level uh, due to their small size, particularly. But I was also wondering if they were somehow kind of perceived by, uh, by the Muslims and the Hindus as kind of uh, complicit in the in the British occupation of, of the country? What the British did, which was so brilliant, uh, was turn the people against one another mm-hmm. so that they would forget that the real bad guy was the British, right? So like in the fighting uh, in partition, this is really complicated uh, because partition was very complicated. And there were areas, there was like a murder belt, right? Where there was there were intense clashes in places where there were uh, multi like multi religious communities and stuff like that. Um, the Sikhs in say Patiala, they they were like they decided that they would have a country of like they were told they would have a country of their own. So they started fighting for it, fighting for their land. In Patiala, they killed anybody who wasn't uh, sick. They would just start indiscriminately firing at at people who weren't sick and um that's just one example right like if even in the movie earth 1947 you see the way that the parsis are kind of kind of insulated from it because the british made it uh an ethnic ethno-religious uh like they, they they made it a diversion and they left and they decided if if we make it about land like where people were fighting for land 
it became fighting against the people who were there. So it's not about the British anymore. It's about your own independence mm. and your independence from these people, these other people, these people who used to be your neighbors. But now you must kill to protect your own sovereignty, right? Because nobody knows what's going on. Mm-hmm. Any, any, any borders could be drawn anywhere. Nobody knows <laughs> because the British left nothing behind. They left us all to figure it out ourselves. So in that, like, confusion and violence and hatred against one another, the Parsis were incredibly silent. And in their silence and neutrality, uh, and in not fighting for land, and in not trying to get any sort of um, concessions from the new state or anything like that, they managed to get out of it without, um, you know, major casualties. Okay. Uh, so it was a diversion, <laughs> like really, it, it was like, I'm sure there were people who blamed them for what happened, but that, you know, happens in retrospect. It, uh, it doesn't happen in the, in the thick of it when you are, you know, fighting for your home against the person next door. You don't think who did this to us, you know, the real bad guy, mm-hmm. uh, about protecting yourself then and there. So, but it's very, it's like senseless. So there was no sense to it. Of course. But so you're saying that uh, the Parsi community was not an object of ours, that they were not perceived particularly as being complicit in the British rule. No, I mean, like they were, but that was forgotten uh-huh. <laughs> in, in favor of their neutrality. Like they were, they just had no stick. They knew because there were so many communities involved with the British. The British were. Of course. Yeah, the British were the rulers for the longest time and people did what they had to. Uh, people didn't understand, like people didn't, I don't think at that point, thought that the thing that we need to fight is the, like they didn't think that far back, you know, they didn't think, oh, who did this to us? They think, they thought this is happening right now. So there was, I, and even I think like post partition, there, uh, there was a connection a uh, very, very potent connection in Pakistan between the British and uh, the Parsis, like in people's heads. Whenever my mom would, the first time my mom mentioned the Parsis, she said they're very British, right? Mm. And that isn't particularly a bad thing, even now. Like, because of the way that we have, we work on as in the way that we learn to accept the British as the rulers and everything they do as superior, they can kind of do no wrong. Even in our history books, we have, uh, like when they're talking about partition, they don't talk about the violence of partition like that. They talk about how the Hindus attacked the Muslims, mm-hmm. right? They talk about how uh, sick people were killed by the Hindus. It's, it's still very intra-religious because both states are based on uh, this kind of I, like religious idea at this yeah. point. And in order, to do, in order to maintain that, you need to get rid of as much complexity as possible and because we still idolize the british everybody wants to go to england everybody wants to go to the uk it's a status marker it's still nothing that you know it's nothing you are ashamed of to have any proximity to the british so Mm -hmm. even back then i don't see why like you know people would think they were connected to the british so they're bad people all the richest people all the people who got uh, all the businessmen, everybody, everybody was connected to the British. Mm-hmm. So, I guess, so it's not just the Parsis, of course. I mean, like everyone who has come to a position of being an elite yeah. 
isn't that okay yeah yeah, yeah. And and if you've been rich from partition like before partition time then you had to be connected to the british yes because they, yeah sold everything <laughs> yes. you could have done business and besides, I mean, from the uh, from the story you tell in the article, also this idea of unquestioning Parsi complicity in the colonial project—it's also not entirely true. I mean, they've had their moments of objecting to British rule, also. Oh yeah, <laughs> my the one that I the example that I used in uh, my article was the dog riots, mm -hmm. which I love so much. Like the concept, just the concept that. The British came and they didn't know the way of things uh, just as they do, right? They come and they disrupt. The colonial mindset is to come and disrupt and not have any, like, give any mind to the way, the natural harmony of things as they were running before. So they came and they saw all these street dogs, not realizing that the street dogs are kind of community dogs. The Parsis take care of them in Bombay. They feed them. They're loved. They're just because they're street dogs doesn't mean that they're completely, you know, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. they're hindrance to anybody. So when the uh, British came and they saw all these street dogs, they didn't like it. They were like, "Oh, this is filthy. Mm. Why are there dogs everywhere?" And they're just going to keep multiplying and all of that. So they started killing them en masse. And the Parsis, realizing that their community dogs are being killed could not handle it. And because at the time, before pre-partition, people used to live together in harmony, in like like multi-religious harmony, there, to some extent, uh, the Muslim, they got the Muslims on board, they were like, the Parsis who got the Muslims on board, they're like, we're going to protest against the British for killing our street dogs. The Muslims were like, sure. And they got the Hindus and they were like, they're killing our street dogs, you know, and the Hindus were like, yeah, let's, it's protest. So all of they went with the, like a horde of people <laughs> and protested against them for days until the the they had to change the had to change the law. And this was done by a very prominent uh, Parsi man who had many many connections to the British. You know, he still just he couldn't. Um, sorry, give me one second. He couldn't handle the fact that that they were doing this, they were so culturally insensitive and they have been throughout the history of empire, right? Like just complete insensitivity, even to the people who are on their side. So the Parsis couldn't handle it and they did have that kind of civil revolt, uh, which was very brief, but showed that, you know, they weren't just pushovers, right? Like, mm -hmm. it's not like they, they just lied down and, and accepted everything that the British like sent at them. They did have that uh, presence of mind to understand, I mean, obviously. And I just find it really interesting that nobody died in that in those riots. Like they're called the dog riots, but mm -hmm. nobody died because of violence because the Parsis are very non-violent people. So the only people that died were two British policemen, I believe, because of heat exhaustion. Uh. <laughs> they're just out in the sun too long. Uh, so. Yeah, no, even even their riots were non-violent. You know, I, I find that fantastic. Uh, and they have lasted for several days also. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, And, yeah, so I, I, when I was talking to Parsi people, they're very adamant that we don't make news. Mm. You know, like, this is just a part of their, com like, community ethic is we try not to make waves. Um, 
and certain people were like we should you know like certain we should change things and convert people and make waves and assert ourselves in the national history and then other people were like it's better it's better that we just get like Very we cool. stay for because um, at least then we're not persecuted mm. it's so sad you know to only mm. have these two choices uh, but yeah it's a it's an ethic that has been there since the, it's in the kisai sanjan that you don't uh, we expect people to assimilate they assimilate they assimilate to any of the factions that uh, we expect you know to be not pick up any arms they don't pick up any arms that's a part of their kind of social contract mm-hmm. and um, you know these things have remained from the mythological beginning or whatever factual you know um, part of that it like remains it has sustained itself through indian uh, like being on the lowest level in gujarat to going up the ladder being up the highest being at the highest point with the british to now being a very small minority everybody is uh, everybody has that sense of calm within them that we don't want to cause too much uh, of a ruckus mm-hmm. uh, and you can see it in their history it's 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 a, it's a calm sort of protest, even if it is a protest, and it's a it's a small revolt, or it's 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 done through speech. There is a there is a man um, who was a Kawashiji who was very well known for writing very angry op-eds and criticizing people like that. And <laughs> so, like, it's done through those means rather than you know. There are some really colorful characters that you talk about in the article also. I mean, speaking of making waves, it's not as if like they haven't made any waves at all. It's just in a different way. Yeah, yeah. I mean, making waves in terms of uh politically, right? Like in terms of the uh like they they make waves uh <laughs> in a positive sense rather than a negative sense. so they set up educational centers all over hospitals roads buildings all mari brewery is our one brewery that we have in pakistan it is led uh, it was opened by a parsi avari hotel still the best hotels in karachi like all these things that kind of allow us to uh, allows karachi to stand in a different level than the rest of pakistan was done by parsis because the parsis really considered karachi their home most of them after partition moved to karachi and uh, it was they built it they built it you you see like roads named after parsis everywhere buildings like parsi jimkhana and uh, statues of parsis but people still forget that's what's interesting is that even in karachi where the parsis have the biggest role to play in all of pakistan's history like compared to other cities in pakistan compared to punjab the parsis of karachi were literally the makers of karachi they were what made karachi this cosmopolitan different city which they love to now you know talk about is that karachi is different and karachi is not like the rest of pakistan and karachi is diverse and a lot of that has to do with the way that the parsis organized it mm-hmm. and um i mean like i said the first mayor of karachi was was a parsi also and 
the best school in Karachi, Mama Parsi, and BVS, the, that's the boys' version, that's all Parsi schools. It's just very, very interesting that even with all of that, uh, Parsi, they're being forgotten in Karachi. If you ask, uh, I mean, <laughs> someone in the, on the census board didn't know what a Parsi was on the census board, you know, which is, which is insane. Uh, so yeah, there is a constant erasure happening because the, with every new generation, our education system is becoming more and more lax in explaining the complexities of our country uh, and trying to maintain our uh, Islamic nationalism, I suppose, mm-hmm. thing that we, because there's no one thing that can solve all of Pakistan. And in that realization, the rulers and the powers that be have tried as hard as possible to erase everything else so that this one narrative can, you know, prosper and we have a sense of identity, which we don't. And they're trying so hard to build one from, uh, the, you know, from, from this demolishing everybody else's. So, yeah, uh, it's, it's really... It's a very relatable story to what's happening in Turkey, I think. <laughs> really? Yeah. Uh, is it trying to base its entire history on uh, like the Islamic Islamic rulers that came before? <laughs> Not even just Islamic, but like Sunni. Uh, oh yeah. It, yeah, that that exactly the Sunni Islamic rule. You know, we uh, recently started Ethnic Rule uh, on Pakistan national. Ah television. right, yes. Yeah, and that has been a huge <laughs> topic of controversy here yes. because it's a great show, but people know why they're playing it, right? <laughs> to kind of further this, we are a great Islamic nation with ties to great Islamic rulers, which makes no sense. Mm. <laughs> I don't understand the connection. But uh, then again, in our history books, we, we skip past all the Hindu parts in India and we go back to Indus, the Indus Valley civilization and then we go to the Mughal, uh, the Mughals. So like we skip all the... A huge gap in between. We, we skip everything and we just go from Muslim to Muslim to Muslim to Muslim and everything else didn't really happen. So, so that's how we are trying to make our... Uh, current times look also like we are all Pakistani, all Pakistanis. For Turkish people, it's even wilder because our history books start when we were nomadic tribes uh, in Central Asia. And then suddenly we find ourselves here and uh, knowing absolutely nothing about what was going on here before we arrived. Because we're not even like, um, historically, we're not even settled people. Yeah. 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 So, so there's this thing, right, that you have to pick and choose your history to g- give people the identity that you want them to latch onto, so mm. that you can use that identity to control them, to get them hyped over your wars and over mm. your, you know, different things that you want. Um, so that's so clear. Like the way that they do it here is so. It's not even subtle. <laughs> it's just. It's just all over the place. Uh, I remember in my first ever historiography course in college, we had a discussion about the Indus Valley civilization and how really 
anything in Pakistan now cannot really be connected to the Indus Valley civilization. Indus Valley civilization yeah. is even before like Mesopotamian civilizations, right? Yes. It's like the first place where settled people exist. It's so old. Yes. And, and exactly. And, and we want our connection to start there. And we want to erase all of what happened with India. As in, we, are, we just want to assert that we were always ideologically a nation. Mm. you know that was the two nations like an idea we always existed mm. which which is you know such a hard such a reach in trying to like justify all the bloodshed of 1947 the create the part- partition in general mm. because there were partition deniers there were people who didn't want pakistan to be created and even today there are people who think that it was a bad idea to mm. separate the so to counter those ideas, the intellectuals who argue that all that bloodshed was not necessary, that even Kaidiazam was just using separation as a bargaining chip to get more rights within India. Mm-hmm. You know, there are these arguments that come up from actual intellectuals who don't have any say in the national curriculum. So they want to brainwash as many people as possible give the filtered version of history so that you don't humanize the other side. You don't see yourself as a part of India ever. Even though when you think about it, we're just two generations separated. I have family in India. Everybody mm. I know you know, has family in India because we, those were our neighbors. We lived right there. And uh, my family actually came from Srinagar. Uh, so it was uh, in Kashmir, which is... To this, you know, like that is the hotbed of conflict. Of course, of course. So in order to maintain our (laughs) rights over Kashmir, like our ideological right, which is that we are Muslim and they are Muslim. Mm. So we own them, you know, it's, it's, it's ridiculous. And And Kashmiris have been asking for independence since the entire conflict began for like, since the, uh, since partition, their demand was independence. And Kashmiris want to decide for themselves. Yes. And, uh, and here you have people, <laughs> because we don't, we are not the ones occupying them. I'm sure they ha- they have a you know a more favorable view of us. But what the Pakistani popula- population twists that favorable view of us as is, oh, they want to be a part of us. So they'll mm. like start. They'll they'll show videos of Pakistan India cricket matches and where Kashmiris are rooting for Pakistan, and they'll be like, look. They want to be Pakistan, yes. and so that's not how that works. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that doesn't. They want don't want to go from one oppressor <laughs> to another. They don't want to go from one occupation to another. And I talked to my father about this because this was a very, very widely held position, even in the most intellectual people in Pakistan, that Kashmir banega Pakistan, which means Kashmir will be Pakistan, mm. which is a rallying cry. This last uh, for. Imran Khan for the past year or so. It's a Kashmir Banega Pakistan. And I was talking to a couple of politicians who work with my dad and I was talking to them about this this line, Kashmir Banega Pakistan. And I was like, how do you, so do you think after the Kashmiris get freedom that they should be taken into our government and 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 then we get to decide what they do and that mm. would make them and all the politicians sitting there and they're looking at my face and they're like, you know what, you're right. 
if that's not the right thing to say, we should say Kashmir, uh, Kashmiri Azadi, as in Kashmiri freedom, uh-huh. rather than Pakistan. And if you read, like, you know, it's just so uh, reflexive, like, uh, instinctive now for Pakistan to say Kashmir Banega Pakistan, like, as if, you know, this is just something that's been hammered into us for the longest time, that Kashmir is going to be a part of Pakistan, that even, that even the most, like, at the highest levels, people who haven't thought about it will believe so. And then if you challenge them a little bit about the Kashmiri people, then they'll start understanding. But we don't have that capacity or that inst- institutional capacity for critical thinking. Mm. What we do in our, in our education system, and I'm sorry it keeps going back to the education system because that's really what you know, uh, decides here how we make our identity and how we, um, how we place ourselves in history and how we derive, our, what we derive our dignity from. Mm-hmm. Uh, we decided on the Mughals. <laughs> but like, uh, oh, sorry, what was I saying? Yeah, we don't have the, like, we don't foster critical thinking because you don't want people to question what we have in our education system is you memorize and you like kind of like in Brave New World where mm-hmm. you have a phrase that you just keep repeating over and over and over and over again until it's internalized. You don't think about it, but you know it, right? Mm-hmm. So that's how the education system works here. And I think if people were challenged a little bit on these things and if they were, they were forced to think about it, then um, you would have a lot more dissent in the country. And that's what they're really scared of. <laughs> I, think a lot of it, I think a lot of it seems to also boil down to like an absence of voices, particularly in a, in a question like Kashmir, where Pakistanis get to give themselves the authority of um, deciding the fate of what would otherwise have been an independent nation. There must be such a huge gap in actually listening to the Kashmiri voices that they're trying to liberate, uh, which is making them unable to understand that their demand is not actually, or not necessarily to become part of Pakistan. Yeah. Um, and I think the nuance is lost a lot there, where when Kashmiris say, let Kashmir decide, it doesn't mm. mean let Kashmir be Pakistan. Yes. And what we do is, uh, we take the few Kashmiris who do want to be a part of Pakistan because they are, and you kind of elevate them to a position or to a platform where they, where the rest of Pakistan can think that they're speaking for all exactly. of Kashmir. Exactly. Exactly. And they do that a lot. Tokenizing. Yeah, tokenizing, and mm. it's, uh, it's, 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 it's exploitation actually, and it's horrible um, the way that we do it because what you're then making this liberation struggle is a pissing contest with right and and you're you're turning it you're making it about yourself Mm. which is what pakistan Uh, (laughs) is make everything even remotely muslim about itself Uh, sometimes it's a great thing you know in like the bosnian genocide of um, uh, pakistan is the only country I believe there was a rogue officer who sent supplies, who sent weapons over to our Muslim counterparts. Mm. Yeah, saying these are our brothers. So sometimes you know it's it's cool, but this pan-Islamism is a really, really, really big part of 
of Pakistani cultures. We're trying to root ourselves in everything Muslim, which is why we love Saudi Arabia, even though they treat us like trash. And mm. every and every Pakistani that goes over there is is just the, the worst of the worst. They are they are treated like slaves. And my some one of my maids who uh, like who lived with in America, she got married and her husband worked for that Osama bin Laden company in in Saudi Arabia that dropped the, it dropped something around uh, the Kaaba. Do you remember recent, like two years ago, there was a huge accident. There was a construction accident and people who were uh, doing Hajj were killed. In yeah, Saudi Arabia, was, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, he worked for the company, the construction company. And what Saudi Arabia did, what that Bin Laden company did, was they fired all the Pakistanis and blamed it on them. Of course. And sent them home without pay. So at the time she came to me and she was crying and she was like, I have, we have no, we have no money because they're not paying. He stays for six months in Saudi Arabia and comes back for two weeks and then goes again for six months in Saudi Arabia. It's the, the conditions are horrible, but... Still, all of Pakistan, you say Saudi Arabia, oh, there are brothers, which is, mm. just, I, I see no, no connection. There's a phrase called Al-Bakistan, like there's a phrase Al-Bakistan, which people use to talk about how Pakistan is trying to make itself a part of the Middle East, uh, <laughs> because uh, like uh, Saudi Arabia, they don't say the word, they don't say the letter P, so it's Al-Bakistan. Ah, okay. <laughs> yeah, so it's Al-Bakistan. Uh, and you see over here, even our architecture, new like developments that are coming up are trying to be like Dubai and trying to be like uh, uh, these, you know, these long roads with these big like, desert. It's, 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 so, it's so ridiculous. Oh, we're taking we're trying to associate ourselves with anything that would give us a sense of identity, you mm. know, a concrete sense of identity, which is you know, what we're looking for. And everywhere we look, <laughs> you, we're, we're finding, you know, these roadblocks and, and we're not understanding why. Mm. And it's because that's not the truth, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so like, like that's, that's a huge conflict that we have. And I think it's going to become a bigger problem. I, I talk about this a lot. Like I talk about this on uh, this uh, TV news show that came out recently. And the guy told me this might be a little too controversial to talk about. But I was like, okay, I'll try and put it in terms that is less uh, abrasive, right? Uh, than, than saying that we have no identity. But like really uh, a lot of what we see, a lot of the conflict that we see, the religious conflict, I mean, between half the country, which is, just moderate and half the country which is extreme and the way you see cultures clash in places like the Orith march the women's march where you have stones half of it like divided in half by a piece of cloth you have mullahs and and uh, women who are completely donned in black and just like at behind the men and and then you have on the other side girls in crop tops and uh, with placards and trans queer people everywhere. And then you see that one side is stoning the other. I mean, there's, there's so much. What March is this? 
the women's march that happened. Oh, that's during the women's march. Okay. That just happened. And I was standing right next to the people who were like storing. Uh, we were right next to the barrier and we had to continue. Like we continued even after the stoning and everything. But you see that there's this, this major divide. There's a rift that's coming up in, mm. in the way that Pakistan functions. Because certain people are completely different and have a completely different idea of their identity that maybe they've identified with the U.S. or they've identified mm. with uh, England or they've identified with um, India even, you know, or they've identified with uh, they've identified with the past that is not the past that that these other people have identified with. And you have Islamic education also, which is very, 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 very prevalent. Madrasa education, which is just Islamic schools. Like, mm. you don't send them to regular school, you send them to Islamic school. Uh, where they memorize the Quran and all of that, and half the population going to that, and half the population going to government public schools, and then I mean, sorry, like part of the population going to government public schools, part of the population going to private schools. So there's a lot of what we are seeing is in like the difference in education, as I keep saying, and that boils down to our differences in identity and our yeah. lack of identity. And Parsis once again didn't fit. Right, like that's the main reason is they didn't fit into our national identity, so they didn't know where to put them. So they just said, "Let's just forget them." Mm. Like, let's just forget them. very easy. So that, uh, yeah, <laughs> it's like Pakistan has a plethora of uh, historically underpinned issues. Like, history is the cause, and also is the like current motivator for a lot of the problems like like i think that's a very global i think that's a very global situation i mean i was thinking earlier about for example how you said um that there's statues of important parsi people all over karachi but nobody remembers them like it made me think about the big debate about statues that's happening in the united states right now and how a lot of people are defending keeping the statues of confederate leaders saying oh but then we're going to forget our history but you know what you're conveying basically is a good reminder that we don't learn history from statues even though there's statues of these parsi leaders who should be remembered um they are being forgotten yeah as opposed to the confederate leaders who need to be yeah, who, are, who are very much remembered and idolized exactly to this day. and who should be reviled yeah. instead of celebrated yeah, and uh, you know, when I lived in the States, it was horrible. <laughs> I mean, the reading history, the reason I chose history <laughs> as a discipline, thank God that I did, was because I loved I loved it growing up. And then when I got to high school, I was confused by it. Mm. And then when I got to college, I decided this is the only way that I can know who I am. Mm. And I've always thought that truth in history is the antidote. And it is uh, like... It is the antidote to most of the world's problems, but also it is a way to completely destruct the order of the world. Mm-hmm. So obviously, people who have the power to do that don't want to, because if you actually tell people the truth and you let them make their own decisions about things and you let them develop their own identities, their own ideas, then order goes out the window. And for people who most value order that uh, is just not a possibility right when i went to the states there was this one i didn't learn i 
I don't even know where to begin because there's so much with the United States history books. Uh, I was in Virginia and they had one section where they were talking about World War II and they were talking about how the U.S. bombed uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Mm -hmm. Lots of people died. Yeah, that was sad. But, you know, if we hadn't done that, then the war would have gone on even Mm -hmm. longer and more people would have died. That was in the history books. (laughs) More people would have died. This complete conjecture, right? And... And then I mean, I've had... seen even U.S. history books where they said stuff like uh, people emigrated to the United States from Europe and Africa for a better life. Oh, yeah, from Europe and Africa. Uh, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> and then uh, I, what I did in high school, I was uh, really interested in radical histories uh, because I was rebelling against my super conservative mm-hmm. You know, it's just like I don't want to be like them. Mm-hmm. So I, uh, I picked up the autobiography of Malcolm X. Malcolm X who only got one line in my in my textbook, and I was like, ooh, Malcolm X, because he was seen as a divisive figure. In, mm-hmm. in the, in the I want to read his book, and I read Ma- Malcolm X, and I don't think my life has ever been the same since. Like mm. any way that I like the world I started seeing as a system of oppression and injustice. And I started seeing power and I had never seen power before. Mm. And when power, power, power will do absolutely anything it possibly can to veil itself. Mm-hmm. Naked power is ugly and, be, and, and it knows that. So what you do is you take this it's so insidious if you think about it start from when they're babies and their education system the way that they think make sure that they think the way that you want them to think exactly. and a very basic understanding of themselves is based on something that you told them mm. rather than something that they figured out you know so it's 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 uh yeah as you said it's a global problem and uh some places you see it affecting people worse than in others mm-hmm. I mean, in homogenous nations, I suppose it might be a little bit easier. <laughs> this is like maybe Iceland, it might be a little easier. But even then, you know, uh, it's, it's the, the concept of the nation is, I think, being challenged a yes. lot. Yeah. yeah. And uh, with immigration also and uh, just the way that things are going, I think all, everything that we've taken for granted for so many years might be dismantling itself, you know pretty cool to watch <laughs> i think we are just about approaching the end of the uh, of our program and i wanted to ask you like you could because we said at the beginning that you would drop a teaser about the next thing that you're working yes, okay. i wrote a little bit about that in my my notes so i'm just gonna open those uh i i wanted to talk about the bathroom because i've been known in my family as somebody who stays in the bathroom for hours <laughs> and it's like like for hours because when I was a kid, I would lie in my bathtub in Thailand because it was the only place that I had privacy. Uh, the rest, I didn't have a room to myself. So I would, I started doing this thing where I would lie in the bathtub and read my books in the silence of the, of the bathroom. And, you know, in the bathroom, you can be yourself in the most unfiltered and naked way known to mankind in, mm-hmm. in both the literal sense and the you know and 
all of the world's most like we don't like thinking about bathrooms right <laughs> because we associate it with this this yeah yeah this tasteful part of the human condition this thing that we kind of want to ignore uh, as a part of uh, ourselves is it's not something that we like remembering but really if you think about it wait, sorry i was supposed to open my thing uh if you think about it the bathroom is a universal experience mm -hmm. it is a place where people are most intimate and vulnerable with themselves and then you when you then you come to the aspect of things like singing in the shower or talking to yourself in the mirror mm -hmm. and stuff like that and okay so i wanted to write about bathrooms and baths of the sacred space uh you trust the bathroom you trust it because the most uh, naked and vulnerable parts of you the most human and primal parts of you are safe there. Uh, growing up, you know, the refuge in bathrooms uh, when you don't have a room of your own is a very, very common thing in Pakistan mm. uh, because people don't have rooms of their own and they're very big families. So you would go, I noticed my little sister started doing it, which is why I had the idea because I used to do this when I was a kid. My little sister started sitting in the bathroom for hours and I was like, what are you doing? <laughs> and she was like, so I just like that, like no one can come in and stuff and nobody questions it. If you're in the bathroom for really long, like it's, it's an excuse in and of itself. No one's gonna say, what are you doing in the bathroom? You like, you know, it's just, you're in the bathroom. So it's kind of a preliminary idea, but I wanted to talk about it from a personal point of view and all the ways that the bathroom has been significant to me throughout my life. And then talk to a few other people in the way that bathrooms have been sacred to them. Because bathrooms are like, it is where you clean yourself. Mm -hmm. It is where you, you know, uh, it is where you empty yourself. It is where you talk to yourself. <laughs> yeah, and it's, it's, a, it's a taboo topic. Like you don't want to think about it for mm -hmm. some reason. But it is of such insane significance to the human condition. That, right? sounds, that it, sounds like a really fun article. Yeah. It's too intimate. Yeah, I will, I will definitely, well, I want to do some research and see what other people have, people have written about bathrooms because really I don't know. Mm. You know, uh, I, I don't, I've never read anything about bathrooms. <laughs> I know in novels you purposely skip over the parts where the, where the character goes to the bathroom. That's not something that you show. You don't show, uh, I mean, in movies you do because then you want to see somebody looking at themselves and having an intimate moment with themselves and you mm -hmm. show them in the bathroom. Sometimes, but, yeah. you don't do that, right? Because <laughs> you don't want to think about the bathroom. <laughs> but yeah, that's uh, my idea for the next article. Cool, cool. Uh, really looking forward to that. And I think with that, we can wrap it up. Uh, it was really fun talking to you and you uh, listening to your, um, not just your story about Parsis, but putting it in a greater context of the current situation uh, in Pakistan as well. And really looking forward to your upcoming article. Thank you so much. <laughs> it was awesome talking to you. Have a great day. <laughs> you too.